All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fairn and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And Greg, if you didn't hear recently, um, <clears throat> is actually doing some much needed traveling and writing currently. So he uh, will not be hanging out with us. Uh, not for too long, just uh, January, February and March. But then uh, he'll be back. So for now, listeners, I apologize. You're stuck with me. I know it sucks. Um, if you have any grievances, you can write them and send them to uh, Trip Fuller, who will handle promptly all <laughs> all of the uh, the complaints. Uh, thank you so much, Trip, for your servant's heart and being willing to do that. Uh, but on the flip side of things, I do have a guest here with me today. Actually, they're a returning guest. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for um, some time, you might remember an episode we did. I want to say it was called Faith, Doubt, and Kierkegaard or something like that uh, with Aaron Simmons. And Aaron has uh, didn't scare him away, which is nice. <laughs> and so he has agreed to come back and and hang out. So, Aaron, how's it going, man? Hey, doing well. The the reference to Trip uh, does send a shiver down my spine, though. So I'm going to try to steal my resolve and stay with you. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, uh, Aaron, just for people who maybe didn't catch that first episode, uh, or I don't know, are just like, okay, you said Aaron Simmons, I'm not going to go listen to a whole another episode. <laughs> uh, who are you and what kind of stuff do you find yourself doing? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I am a philosophy professor at Furman university, which is in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, been here about 12 years, I guess, 12, 13 years. Um, and got into philosophy. It turns out so that I could go trout fishing. Because my dad is a professor and I figured, crap, he he fishes all the time. And so I looked for a, a way to get summers off to go fishing. And so a PhD in philosophy seemed like a pretty good way to do it. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't understand how tenure worked. 
And so I spent the first 15 years of my career doing way too much writing and speaking and teaching and not not enough fishing. And so uh, post-COVID, I'm doing my best to spend more hours mountain biking and trout fishing and camping and overlanding in my uh, Tacoma and spending time with my family. And so in some ways, I feel like that I'm now at 45 years old. Uh, really trying to live into the stuff that I've been writing and publishing and arguing was true for the last 20 years or so. So uh, I'm I'm stoked to be with you. And yeah, I, I do a lot on Kierkegaard, uh, hence the previous episode, um, and just finished a book uh, called Camping with Kierkegaard that's all about faithfulness and living on purpose in the outdoors. And so thinking about mountain biking and uh, Emmanuel Levinas and you know what uh, Heidegger might tell us about how to you know, be better fishermen. So it's it's a book I hope that will be out soon. And uh, when it does, maybe I can come back on and we can chat about that. Oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. And uh, I've, I've had the privilege, you've sent me a few chapters. Um, and I have enjoyed what I've read so far. So I'm excited for it to come I'm, out as I'm, well. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it turns yeah. out, uh, you, you've heard the joke, right? The the more people drink, the better my uh, talk sounds. And so uh, my, <laughs> I, I hear that with the, the new fruity beer that you're working on uh, pairs well with chapter nine. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're exactly right. And that when I concocted uh, the new fruity beer, it was specifically for chapter nine. So that was the intention. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, it's, yeah. it's a Nietzsche chapter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who are unaware and so I, I tend to think Nietzsche would have drunk fruity beers yes <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> oh good deal well uh today I wanted to have a conversation that I think is uh for whatever reason I have a strong interest in um it's not necessarily though you know the happiest of conversations per se uh, I guess depending on how you look at things uh but it is one that I think is deeply important uh, because I think it is often overlooked and even intentionally avoided um, in much of our culture and society today. And I think if that wasn't the case, uh, some really good things could come out of us and uh, come out of that, which uh, I'm talking about, of course, is the uh, I don't know if you want to call it a problem, but the problem of death, <laughs> of yeah. aging and death. It's the it, immediately half the audience is like, I'm good. Click. Yep. Deuces. <laughs> so Bye. Those, those who have stayed in, <laughs> we'll do our best to make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like for me, so I specifically wanted to talk about this uh, because I've been th like, I don't know, death is something I've always kind of uh, thought a lot about. Um, mm -hmm. Which is, I don't know if that's weird. I mean, I listened to a lot of like emo music and stuff growing up. And so like maybe yeah. there's something to it. Um, but I also have found um, that once I started to more embrace uh, my finitude, that it actually had some positive uh, impacts in my life. And so um, it's not my most recent tattoo, but um, my second most recent tattoo, this I have a like skull and roses and it says death will know my name mm. and so i kind of got that um almost as like a memento mori piece like just you know remember your death um mm. and and have found that really compelling and then at uh beer camp which we were at together uh during your talk you said some things that i found compelling about death and asking me question not me directly but asking questions <laughs> about yeah. uh what are you going to do with your finitude and so mm -hmm. um, I was like, hey, Aaron, I think we need to talk about this. And uh, so, yeah, now, yeah. now here no, we glad are. Glad to be here. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So the way that I approach this, um, 
you know, is kind of at two levels, right? One level would be uh, as a professional phenomenological philosopher, I'm really interested in aging and death as lived phenomena. Now, we might say death itself, like one's own death is not a phenomena that you can experience, right? That this is the trick. Why it's phenomenologically weird is because like as Heidegger says, you know, when death, my death is, I'm not. And when I am, my death is not. So death um, for Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, it's really this sort of limit phenomenon, like this, this awareness in my lived existence that all of my projects, all of my actions, all of my efforts have a use by date, right? That there's like this, you know, expiration stamp that we all somehow carry with us. And he thinks that this is fundamentally um, a technical word is that it's a horizon against which we then make meaning. But for somebody like Emmanuel Levinas, it's not my death that is so troubling. It's the death of the other. It's the fact that in my world, there is no one that I know that will not die. And so the only experience of death that I have is always someone else's, right? It's my grandfather or grandmother who died or my friend who died. And so the ability to think about death um, and then aging as a kind of embodied experience of death's proximity, right? Like doing this as a professional phenomenologist is sort of my my day job. Uh, but more and more, again, the older I get, uh, the more post-COVID we live, the more that our vulnerability was made manifest daily as we all hunkered down and lost friends and neighbors and um, became aware of what historically marginalized peoples live in really grotesquely present ways because of the social injustice that characterizes their existence for white guys like us, you know, in, in a really profound unjust way, something like COVID then awakens us to this thing that was always present for so many. Right. And then we realize that once we're awakened, it's not that this wasn't present. It was just that I had the privilege to ignore it. So I, it wasn't like, oh, well, now I'm aware that I'm going to die. I was aware of it then. I just sort of was busy enough not to pay attention, right? And then COVID slowed us down, at least me, in ways that required me to say, whoa, at 45, well, what do I want the next 10 years to look like? Like I'm at that weird middle age spot where I'm becoming more and more aware of the physical limitations that will start to set in. You know, I can't run with the 20 year olds anymore on the basketball court, which is a weird sort of thing because you never feel middle-aged. You just sort of aren't as fast as the other people. Right. And you know, my dad just turned 80 a few days ago and he's like, man, I don't feel any older than I did at 25. It's just, I can't do as much. And so that awareness of the older we get, the more limited we become, started me thinking not in the phenomenological vein, but the existential one. So existentialism at its most basic is this fundamental question, uh, what will you then make matter, <laughs> right? It, it's not just what does matter, it's what will you decide matters. This is why Sartre talks about agency and why Beauvoir talks about freedom in the ways that they do. So the question for me became existentially not 
what's the right phenomenological way to make sense of this complex, ambiguous object? It became, crap, my son's 13. <laughs> what, what am I going to do with him this year? How can I live today so that tomorrow is not filled with, shoot, I should have done that yesterday? And this yields, as you say, the fundamental question of all of my thinking right now is what's worthy of our finitude? To make it more personal, what will you do with your finitude, right? And when we ask it that way, it doesn't ignore the social injustice realities. It doesn't cause us to be egoistically concerned with you know, you getting the new Tesla or me getting a new phone or my son for some weird reasons, like all into Michael Jordan shoes right now. So he's like, he wants a new pair of Jordans. It's not that it's when we think about what will you do with your finitude? The justice aspect of this is how do we then invest ourselves in social structures that allow that question to be real for everyone? And that's where I increasingly think existentialism speaks to who we are and who we're trying to become as social beings. It's not just about my freedom. It's about what does it look like to make the freedom of meaning making a historical possibility for myself and all of my neighbors. So that's ultimately the, the two kind of levels at which I've been thinking about this, phenomenologically and then existentially. And so I don't know which way you want to kind of unpack it, but for me, what will you do with your finitude invites us then to reflect on what does it mean to get older? And then ultimately, how does getting older name for us a particular kind of being toward death, as Heidegger would put it? Right. Without being morbid and depressive, maybe this is an invitation to real joy that thinking about death, not all the time. Right. I'd rather go fishing, <laughs> but but thinking about it in order to make going fishing the thing I decide to do more of or being with my son on purpose or today he came home from school and it was just beginning to start raining. He's like, Dad, quick, we've got just a couple minutes before the rain comes. And he wanted to go outside and play airsoft, right? And shoot these little Orbeez at each other and stuff. And I was like, I'm down, man, come on. And so we went out for five minutes. The rain started coming. We had to quit. But there's nothing I could have done more important with that five minutes than be with my son. And it's because of the reality of aging and death that that five minutes signals in the way that I think it can when we pay attention to this existential and phenomenological depth. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really good. And I like the, personally, the existential aspect, um, at, like it adds a lot for me. But I think too, I wanted to ask, um, because what if, so like, what about somebody who instead of taking the like existential route and using it to say, okay, cool. So like, how can, like this now enhance my life. There are people who kind of do the opposite, right? And be like, oh, well, like I'm going to die. So like really nothing matters, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then this becomes, because you touched on social justice, which is uh, something that's like uh, really important to me, right? Social justice, mm -hmm. ecological justice, uh, which I I mean, I, I see those two things deeply interrelated um, and interconnected. Absolutely. But um, you have people who would say things like, Oh, well, like I'm going to be dead before the earth, like, you know, gets super screwed up anyway. So like, it doesn't matter for me right. or the, they'll say the same thing about uh, social justice issues or whatever. 
So like what, um, I don't know what, like, I guess realms or schools of thought kind of go in Mm -hmm. that more like, I don't know if if that's like nihilistic direction. Um, and then like, how would you talk to somebody and maybe try to convince them otherwise? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So (laughs) it's, it's interesting when you teach philosophy all the time, like I do, um, and, and you do also, right. You different audiences, but this is what we do all the time. And you start thinking a lot about audience. And so when I teach philosophy to an audience, let's say of a bunch of, you know, college freshmen, uh, first year students, the fact is there will be some who, when I start talking to them about these existential topics and, you know, what's the meaning of life and why does it matter to find your calling and you, how do we make sense of the reality of finitude or how do we avoid despair and what does anxiety look like and how's it different than fear or whatever these topics are that we kind of do in first year philosophy. One group will always respond in the way that I'm encouraging. You know, it's the kind of hell yes, right? Let Woo! We, we we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. Let's make of the you know, let's make the most we can of today, right? Let let's call those the existentialists, which is what I ultimately think existentialism, um, not as a philosophical movement, right? I'm not thinking here 20th century French and German thinkers from roughly 1930 to. I'm thinking more existential philosophy as this trajectory or orientation that includes people like you know Seneca and uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet and even moments in Socrates, right? Um, mystic Begin uh, theologians like um, Marguerite Poret, for example, would read in this existential way. So that existential direction is not optimistic, right? It's not saying it's all going to come up roses. Uh, it's way more, how can we, in light of the fact that roses fade and snow's going to come, spend time in the gardens while they're blooming? And then how can we recognize that, oh, shoot, when there's snow on the ground, sledding is possible, (laughs) right? So it's a way of trying to not be rose-colored glasses, but be aware of the fact that there is always an opportunity to see existence as beautiful. Uh, a friend of mine, Nick Riggle, just published an amazing book called This Beauty. Highly recommended. And it's basically this point. It's, you know, what does it mean to look at my son sleeping and be like, yeah, things are okay, even if <laughs> there is still injustice and misery and despair. How do we live into that? I think that's what existential philosophy invites. Then there's a second group. And for lack of a better term, let's call them the absurdists. These are, uh, uh, if I can make this not hit too close to home, these are the, you know, um, hipster, craft beer drinking, um, process inclined folk that are really stoked about the idea that, hey, all of it's a crapshoot. Oh, well, right. And the idea of the absurdists, um, and here, if you're speaking technically, we could talk about, uh, you know, things like uh, waiting for Godot and you know, Samuel Beckett's work and stuff. But the absurdists are not nihilists. They're not rejecting saying nothing matters, but they're not really the existentialists saying beauty is possible right now as a decision. They're the ones saying 
decide or don't decide. It doesn't effing matter. It, it's all gonna it's all gonna die, right? So it's not that it eliminates agency or erases meaning. It basically just, I think, lacks motivation to move one direction instead of another, right? And then you've got the third group, which that's called the nihilists. And the nihilists are rarely good at it, right? It's more that they're um, just plagued by despair in ways that is real human and and exhausting. But it then plays out as a rejection of, well, then what's the point? So if you've got the existentialist saying, hey, yeah, it just started raining. It's messing up our airsoft game. But you know what? We've got a guitar upstairs. Dude, have you learned zombies by cram- I mean, cranberry? By you know, Zombies by cranberry? Like, I just entirely flubbed that. So editor fixed this. So we've got a guitar upstairs. So it's like, you know, have you learned to play zombie by cranberries, my 13-year-old son? And he's like, what is that? You know, like, we've got another thing we can do. And it also is an opportunity for meaning. And then there's going to be days where I've got to grade papers and I'm annoyed by it. But if I know, look, I'm grading papers because that also matters and it's impacting people and it's inviting them to excellence. And I do this so that on the next day I can go mountain biking. Like, it's not making everything awesome, but it makes it purposive, right? The absurdists, there's just no purpose one way or the other. So meh, right? It's kind of just the meh living. Whereas the nihilists are saying, no, it's actively meaningless. It's not just that there's no obvious reason one way or another. It's that it all sucks. (laughs) And the way I like to think about this is by um, highlighting a great passage from Albert Camus um, where he talks about Sisyphus, right? And Sisyphus is, you know, cursed to roll the rock up the hill and then it rolls back down and he has to do this for all eternity. It's really hard to teach this in a philosophy classroom without a whole bunch of people saying, just give up. What's the point? This is stupid. I hate this. When's my business class? I want to go be pre-med, right? It's this like run away from philosophy because it's trying to tell us that there's some meaning to be found in pushing that rock up the hill, even though you're not going to succeed. I think the way nihilism shows up in our society is not the goth kids listening to The Cure painting their fingernails black. It actually shows up as the success-oriented external accomplishment is the only thing that gives purpose to my life mode of living, right? And so they look at Sisyphus and think like, what a waste of time. I'm out. I'm going to go over here and, you know, buy a Rivian, which I kind of wish I could afford. But that gives me purpose because nothing really matters. The absurdists look at uh, Sisyphus and say, huh, what an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, we've all got rocks. <laughs> what? Whatever. Right. And that, I think, actually plays out as this kind of aimlessness that we also see very commonly, uh, I would say, less among the college age and more the middle aged. (laughs) Right. Where we kind of age into inertia rather than passion. That's where I think absurdism shows up is just like, yeah, like we read Sisyphus and we're like that. Yeah, that's me at my job. I work nine to five. I make just enough money to take a two week vacation. What's the point? Eh, I can't quit. I got a mortgage. Like it ends up being like, it's just absurd because there's never drive. 
but it's also not rejected in the name of like supplementing it with the idol of my own greatness that nihilists do by getting a new iPhone or a new pair of Jordans. The existentialists say with Camus, we imagine Sisyphus happy. And that's the weird ask, right? We imagine him happy? Well, think about it. He has something to do. He's never bored. Like, think about it. Like, here's a life not defined by boredom. Even though he does the same thing over and over and over, he always has a task. And not only does he always have a task, he also has a purpose, which Camus narrates as basically saying, screw you to the gods. <laughs> Right, Because their point was to make him miserable, to turn him into a nihilist who just gives up and says, screw this. If I can't achieve it, if I can't graduate from the best med school, who cares? And he says, nah, watch. I'm going to push this rock with everything I've got because it's not about succeeding at getting it to the top of the hill. It's about being someone who does not let the external authority dictate what will matter to me. Camus says – his rock is his thing. So the existentialists, it's not necessarily about some sort of eternal success or achievement. It's about the, what I would describe as humble persistence, recognizing that we risk ourselves with a direction. And this is what I call faith, right? Risk with direction. So how do we then say it's not about success Seeding at something that gives me purpose and gives me meaning. It's about being faithfully invested in ever being committed to its mattering. And then aging becomes a really cool topic because, man, like at 45, I think I could rock 22 right now. Like I would be so good at it, <laughs> right? Because I'm no longer deceived by the priorities of being 22. But I'd have a body and energy that is unlimited relative to now what I recognize is probably worth doing. So part of what happens in aging is if we gain wisdom, the idea is we simply recognize that we should try to be as good as we can at being the age we are, right? Because we are who we're becoming. And this is the reason nihilism. This screw it, if I'm not going to get paid, what's the point? If I'm not going to be successful, why does it matter? If no one's going to know about it, if the book's not going to get published, why even write it? That nihilist success logic is so tempting because it's so immediate in its cachet, right? You can show people, see, my life is purposeful. I have the new house. <laughs> Look, I, I matter. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I've got the fancy bike. Like it, it allows us not to have to get overwhelmed by the task of constantly choosing to direct ourselves towards what we want to become. And so for me, think about it. 45, my questions are not singularly, how do I publish this next book? Right, I hope I do. I hope it does well. But it's now like, how do I become a good father? But unlike the 34-year-old who was a new father, now at 45 with a 13-year-old, I realize like, I ain't going to become a good father. I will ever only hopefully become a better one. 
right? It's not like on a Tuesday, done, fathering win. See ya, fam, I'm out. Like that idea of a success logic makes nihilistic the point of the persistent investment in one's family. Being a good husband. I might have this amazing Valentine's Day, rocket, best in the world. Well, I guess I better leave my wife the next day because I'm going to leave on top, <laughs> right? The hard part is, how do I push that rock back up the hill every single day? And so aging for me is not only about understanding loss, living in light of fragility, but it's also being aware of the radical emptiness of the other alternatives, right? And at some level, that's hard to tell people at the front of their life because they're real excited about what's possible. The 20-year-olds are real hard to convince to become existentialists. But you know who's real excited about hearing existential topics? People who are in nursing homes. I got invited a few years ago before COVID to speak to a assisted living community, and they asked me to come talk about finding meaning when you're close to death. And I mean, that's hard enough talking with you, right? <clears throat> it's, it's hard enough talking to a bunch of 20-year-olds in my classes. But I walk in this room, it's packed. The whole back wall has got canes and walkers, and wheelchairs. I mean, like it's just covered up because the average age in the room is probably 80, 85. And you're giving this talk and I'm like, who am I at 40 or whatever I was? What do I have to tell them about finding meaning? Like they, they should tell me. But the point was they are so cognizant of the fact that their days are fewer. And so they want to be really active in making those days important. And that's a heavy burden, right? Because they spent some of their time to come listen to me. A, a questionable choice to be sure. Right before I get ready to speak, one of my friends there in the community comes up to me and she's probably 82, 83. He says, hey, I want to introduce you to somebody. And so she takes me over, introduces me to this woman sitting in the front row in a wheelchair. And the woman could barely speak. <laughs> and, you know, my friend introduces me to her and this is Professor Simmons and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I said, hello and this and that. And then I was walking back up to the podium and my friend tells me she has just stopped eating and so we'll probably not survive more than two or three more days. When you're told, like, for me, the last thing I think I'd want to do is listen to a philosopher at 40 tell you how to live when you've got two days. Like, that was so heavy and, and mind-blowing to me. And yet, when I got done with the talk, she basically, you know, didn't have the energy to move, but you know, kind of called me over. And so I went back over to her and she just took my hand and, you know, with a look basically said, thank you. Right. It seems to me that the problem we have thinking about death, which again, I suck at, right. You know, I, I get super high blood pressure when I go to the doctor, cause I'm nervous that they're going to tell me I have high blood pressure. I mean, I'm, I'm not the guy to tell you like how to conquer this stuff, but wow. When you see in the eyes of those facing something that significant and, and you don't have to imagine them happy, you can see that they are. Man, dude, like 
that use, like that's what philosophy was always about. It wasn't so we could write fancy books and geek out, you know, talking about Cobb versus Griffin versus Keller at a conference. It's so that we can maybe live a little bit more on purpose, suck a little bit less at relating to other people, appreciate the beauty when we can find it, and not get cynical about that as a lived task. And it's so hard to do. But that's the best I've got at trying to encourage somebody, don't go toward nihilism, because what that looks like is not what you think. What that will look like is getting the fancy suit, <laughs> the high-rise apartment, driving the Porsche, and thinking you're better than all the schlubs at that assisted living community who don't have the energy to do the awesome things you do. That's nihilism. Real purpose is saying, nah, I'm going to sit and have this conversation because there is no better way for me to spend these minutes. And then recognize there's always a better way to spend them, and that's the risk. You don't get to feel confident and comfortable about your choice. You do the best you can. And then you say, God, help me to do even better at the next minute. Help me to be a better father. Help me to be a better husband, a better neighbor, a better social justice warrior in whatever way I can. Help me do this even more so. And I think that's ultimately the lived example of what Derrida means when he says that democracy is always yet to come. It's it's really democracy if and only if we know it's not yet democratic enough, right? That doesn't make us exhausted. It propels us to say, wow, every minute now is life-giving, even when we're exhausted, <laughs> right? Then maybe the best thing to do is take a nap, and that's okay too. And that's, I think, where for me the importance is, is like try to lift the guilt a little bit off people's shoulders because we carry so much of it. We're exhausted, and then we're guilty about being so exhausted. <laughs> well, maybe what we should do, again, is like go camping or go to the beach or just have a better conversation. Or like you did, we were scheduled to start at 7. You're like, hey, I, I must spend five more minutes having dinner with my wife. And my response is like, you should. Heck yeah, man. Like make me wait on you because that's better. That's a better choice. Anyway, that's the best I got. That, that, that's what I think is maybe the way to try to invite people, not argue them out of, but invite them to see things differently. No, I dig it. And I, li I like the invitation language because I am someone who's more process oriented. And so that idea mm -hmm. of the lore of God, right? And I think, <laughs> I think that can fit, though, too, within this like existentialist framework that you're offering, uh, because if we think that uh, God is... Con whatever we mean by God is constantly right. uh, alluring and inviting us into things that are good and beautiful and true uh, and loving. And then we have the ability to either uh, accept and give into this alluring or not. Um, I feel like the, the daily choice uh, to kind of give into the lore of God and recognize mm. that I'm, you know, constantly in this process of becoming kind of right. can fit nicely within that existentialist uh, framework. And yeah. then also what I like about it too, um, when you were talking that it's not just like this, you know, um, sunshine and rainbows kind of thing, uh, which I think is super important because uh, how I understand joy, um, which I think is a deeply important thing. Um, yes. is is joy is not 
so much an emotion, but it's it's more so a, a disposition. Uh, it's like a mm. way of being in the world that yeah. has room for both the good and the bad to coexist yeah. together and uh, recognize that even if things are going really great or really shitty, <laughs> there's this uh, other level um, that we can call joy. And it, yeah. it seems like an existentialist framework uh, lends itself nicely to whatever this thing joy is and can kind of yeah. help push us in that direction. I love it. I mean, <clears throat> so, so I'm born and raised in the South. Uh, and so the way that I like to encapsulate what you just said is the ambiguity between the question mark and the period in the following phrase. You good? <laughs> right? Is is that a question? You good? Yeah, I'm all right. Or is it a statement? You good. And I tell my students all the time, thinking about that ambiguity, right? That the question mark and the period resonate at the same time. And what we've got to recognize is even in those moments where things are crap and awful, and one of the important facets of existentialism, in my opinion, is that it really understands that, right? Existentialist philosophy uh, has a bad rap for being very depressive. In fact, I gave a um, talk recently. I actually forget who it was to. I think some some group over in Cambridge, but I gave a talk called uh, Why Are Existentialists So Miserable? <laughs> and it was tongue in cheek. Like the whole point was, I'm going to argue that they're not, right? But I posted on Facebook and said, hey, everybody, you know, well, how would you answer this question? Why are they so miserable? Fully assuming that everybody kind of assumed that they sort of were in this popular received sort of way. All that happened were a bunch of professional philosophers got super mad at me. you right. How dare you say that? You don't understand Sartre. You've never read that. And I was like, gosh, dang it. <laughs> what? Wow. In our professionalism, we get disconnected, even doing existential philosophy, we are disconnected from the existence of all these people, right? Ourselves included, who walk around miserable a lot. And so what I think existentialists get right is there's a lot of misery. There's a lot of suffering. But what they also get right is the reason that that is possible is because vulnerability is essential to the human condition. And so we might ask, oh, well, so we wish we could be otherwise, right? And this is unfortunately what lots of religious traditions try to do, is say, no, we are not vulnerable. We are invulnerable because we will live forever, because this life we're just passing through, right? On that great getting up morning, when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Like the whole narrative is a kind of escapism. And something that is right about process, though I'm not processed, though I am relational in my theology, I'm an open theist, is we agree, we open and process folks, about the fact that the goal of theological existence is flourishing human lives, right? Not in an anthropocentric way, but we're human. So let's try to do this the best we can. If we were jellyfish, we would do that the best we could. And so thinking well about how to live 
is always starting by taking seriously that there is a lot of living that is not fun, that is not happy, that is not exciting or pleasant. And you're right, though, to say, but does that mean it's not joyful? And that's the question for me. But but you good? <laughs> right? And I tell my students the point of every class I teach, especially post-COVID. Yes, we're going to learn Descartes' trademark argument, and we're going to learn different versions of metaphysical realism, and we're going to think really well about modal logic and blah, 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 because that's what we do as professionals. But the reason we do this is because I want all of them to realize that, yeah, they're good, right? Does that mean they're going to live forever? Oh, probably not, <laughs> right? Be best evidence to the contrary, we're all going to die. Whether or not you believe in eternity or not, I don't think that impacts what it means to live in light of finitude. And so being able to have this sense of groundedness of, nah, I'm okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm good, right? The, uh, Jay-Z has this line where he says, baby, I'm good. And I was like, man, that's right. Like that's existential philosophy. That at 20, I'm trying the best I can to do 20 well, to rock at this. And then at 40, I'm going to try to do 40 as well as I can. And I'll do it better if I did 20 well, <laughs> right? Which is the, I'm always who I'm becoming. But if I'm pissed at 40 because I effed up at 20, now I'm going to screw up 60. And so the idea of finding joy, or Kierkegaard calls it learning joy, which in your ecological mind, you'll appreciate. He says, we learn joy as the ultimate lesson from the lilies and the birds. Isn't that awesome? We learn joy. But he says, we learn joy only once we learn silence. In other words, I would say humility, that it's not all about us, right? So what can I learn from others by listening? And then learning obedience, which is a hard word for us these days because we don't like authority and we all read a bunch of Nietzsche and you listen to Rage Against the Machine when we were in our teens, right? And so the idea is like, screw authority. Well, but what he means by obedience is we learn to submit to the facts that define our condition. It's what Aristotle calls practical wisdom. It's vulnerability is who I am. <laughs> So, so I can't act like I'm not vulnerable. How can I inhabit vulnerability well and in that way live obediently to what it means to be the body that I am? Then we learn joy, right? Because we can only learn joy if the vulnerability, the humility is now activated as a lived praxis. And when we get that, wow, doesn't make you know, the other day, my heater went out, the coldest night of the year. It was like seven degrees here in South Carolina, which is super cold for South Carolina. Stupid heater goes out. And I, I, I admit, like, happiness was not my companion at that moment. Annoyance and pissiness was. But then <laughs> I, I found a company who could come out to my house like four hours later. And then I had to think, oh, thank goodness. And I thought, wait a minute. Am I now finding joy because it ended up working out the way I had hoped? Well, that's not joy, right? That, that's just happiness for an outcome. And that's okay. We should be thrilled about that too. Celebrate at graduations. You get the promotion. Heck yeah. Go eat fancy cheesecake. Like I'm all in on celebrating successes. I'm just not a fan of letting successes define your joy or define your value.
And so I had to think like, what if he couldn't come? What if no one could come? What if we didn't have any way to get warm that night? And then it occurred to me, I had no end of people responding to my post on Facebook. Gosh, dang it. Rah. I had friends reach out and say, dude, I've got heaters. You want them? I had one guy's a pastor here in town. like, hey, dude, you guys want to come sleep in the church tonight? It's warm. Like my parents live two miles away. They're like, hey, come on over. The, the idea, joy is not the outcome. It's the awareness of the relational connectivity in spite of vulnerability. And I'd say even precisely because of it, that you're good, question mark, <laughs> is the statement offered by the other about your goodness, period. Right. The fact that someone says, Josh, you good? Like checking on you is a statement. Yeah, you're good because I got you, bro. Right. That reality is then again a social requirement. So the task becomes not how do we confuse joy with happiness or satisfaction, but how do we make joy possible for all? How do we live joyfully as an invitation to others? rather than just lording over them because we somehow found a thing that they weren't lucky enough to obtain. Yeah, I I like that a lot. Um, and it kind of reminds me too, although I don't know if it would fit perfectly. Um, I'm trying to remember, who was it? It might've been Alan Watts uh, mm -hmm. talking about this. Basically the idea that like, um, when you're constantly just like uh like the desire to have a situation other than the one that you're currently in is inherently a negative uh yeah. experience um yeah. and then like but accepting the reality for what it is um then can become a positive experience right. um and like i i kind of thought of that when you were speaking but then also i didn't know if that quite um if that quite fits or not cuz like <laughs> i don't know um, I don't know, like, cause it, it seems like perhaps it could, but also I don't want to pull away the idea of hope and maybe hope right. can still, um, participate. We can accept the present moment for what it is and still have, uh, hope in a, or what did you say? Faith is like risk in a, uh, risk specific, direction. Yeah. yeah. In a direction, um, that could still hold true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Is there, have you heard like that kind mm -hmm. of thought process before and does that fit here mm -hmm. or is this actually something that's at odds yeah I, I think it depends how you cash it out right the the devil or god uh, is always in the details <clears throat> so uh, a friend of mine todd may wrote this amazing book called death highly recommended and in that book uh, and then also another book called a fragile life uh, also excellent he argues and i fully agree with him on this that the only way for genuine meaning to be possible for finite beings is if we take our finitude seriously, rather than as a burden, we see it as the condition of the things we actually desire, <laughs> right? And that sounds weird because we tend to think, oh, well, uh, you know, if the first date is always the best date, well, I just want that first date to last forever. If the first kiss is the best one, why don't I ever want to get past the first kiss? So we try to just say, how can I constantly live fully where I am such that I'm never desiring to be elsewhere? So every kiss is a first kiss. If we mean by that, this kind of what May calls 
invulnerabilism, right? So certain types of um, Buddhist approaches, for example, that would say the goal is then to eliminate desire, so we eliminate suffering, right? And again, certain certain types, not all, certain types of Buddhist approaches that would say this. I want to say, by the way, <laughs> uh, certain types of Christian theology does the same work, right? This sort of, uh, ironically, the flip side of health and wealth theology is this, um, it doesn't matter what's going on because it's all going to work out in heaven, right? And so basically we stop the desire to change things in the world and make things better and work for justice. So how any version of this, whatever tradition, whatever cultural manifestation, invulnerabilism, stoicism is this way, right? Because it says, hey, only concentrate on what you can change, the rest of it, who cares? So it ends up basically saying, so don't even, don't even desire the stuff you can't change. That invulnerabilism has some benefits <laughs> because it does, it seems, invite a kind of contentment that desire threatens to dislodge, right? I'm always trying to be something else. Well, I'm never quite there. The problem is <laughs> if we recognize that, look, it's the vulnerability of my condition, the fragility of my projects, the tenuousness of my actions, the um, flawed possibility of my beliefs, like the fact that it's all humbled by my vulnerability, by my finitude, by the fact of my aging and death, that's what conditions the possible significance of living into it. So if we lived forever, Todd argues this, if we lived forever, inevitably, nothing would be praiseworthy, right? And I think he's right, because if we lived forever, nothing would be praiseworthy because anyone and everyone could literally do everything because we all have enough time. Why is it that we celebrate when Yo-Yo Ma plays some cello concerto in ways and it's just absolutely mind-blowing? Or you hear uh, you know, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata performed and it brings you to tears because it's done so well. Or you have that you know, perfect bowling game. My son went bowling this week. I'm super excited because he crossed 100. You know, or like for me, I just ran this trail uh, <clears throat> a few weeks ago called Burnt Mountain. And I was terrified of this thing for months. And then finally just was like, all right, let's hit it and ran this thing and survived it and lived it. The vulnerability is the condition of it being something that then you say, yeah, <laughs> right? Because without vulnerability, there is no risk. And without risk, there is no faithfulness. So I would say if the idea is desiring for somewhere else is misery means we should try to be invulnerablists, I reject it. But what it might mean is, given our vulnerability and the contingency of our decisions, the fact, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we can always do otherwise, right? And that awareness is, again, exhausting <laughs> because Levinas says it makes us insomniacs because you can't sleep. I can always do more. I can always do more. I can always do more. Derrida <laughs> makes it really extreme. He says, when I feed the cat outside my door, I am complicit in not feeding all the cats around the world so that I am guilty of their starvation, right? Well, even if that's in principle true at some sort of like modal level, 
uh, I think that's just nonsense when it comes to what it means to live well. If there's a cat that's hungry outside my door and I've got a can of tuna, I can take care of that cat's hunger or I can choose not to. That's the question, right? And so do the best you can with what presents itself to you as the question in front of you. We don't have to then sit back and do philosophy. Let's live philosophically. And I think that's ultimately the call. So I'm okay with desiring things be different. I think that's where we've got to be really careful about what we mean by hope. So hope, I argue, uh, has three different forms. Uh, Here I'm drawing on Heidegger's uh, categories, though he doesn't cash it out with hope. There's existential hope, I-E-L-L, existential hope, which is the kind of hope for a particular thing. You want to do a podcast with me about death? We do a podcast. It goes well. Awesome. Your hope came to fruition. You hope that when we get done, you can go have a bowl of ice cream. Turns out you've got ice cream in the fridge, and so you can eat some ice cream. Woo! Right? Existential hope is the soul hope available to the success-driven nihilist. Because the only hope they have is for quantitative achievement. But then there's another kind of hope, existential hope, I-A-L, existential hope. Existential hope is the fact that we are defined by aging and death, that time is a horizon for all significance. Tomorrow, we want to wake up and do stuff, right? That hope for tomorrow, the hope for next week, the hope that what I do today has dividends and pays off in some sort of way in the future. Our futurity is part of who we are and therefore makes hoping for tomorrow not just probable, but necessary. That's a different kind of hope than hoping for the new car on Thursday, which is existential. But then there's the cool hope. These are good. There's nothing wrong with either of these, but then there's the cool hope. And I call this eschatological hope. Eschatological hope is not hope for something to occur in heaven, (laughs) right? But it's hope that A future that is impossible for me to envision now, according to the logic of my existential framings, might in fact be the future into which we can live. I would suggest that there is no one working for climate change activism that's going to keep doing it long unless they've got existential hope. I mean, it's going to be eschatological hope. Because... There's no way to get there, man. Like we're effing it up every single day. So what do you do? Well, you have existential goals. Let's reduce carbon emissions by X by this date. Let's try to recycle more. Let's have more renewable energy. Like you're doing these practical things, but ultimately they are not what really gets you out of bed. What gets you out of bed is the fact that there is a future that if I really gave into it, I would recognize as impossible. And yet I hope. (laughs) right? And yet I live toward that. And it's that hope against hope that people like John Caputo talk a lot about that really do, I think, animate what it means to say, boy, desiring to be somewhere else can make you miserable if your hope is only existential. Because then it's just about getting other stuff. That's identity defined by envy. But what if... I desire to be somewhere else and that somewhere else is the eschaton, right? The the impossible future where lion and lamb lay down together, where truth matters more than power, 
where uh, hospitality and humility dictate what power looks like. Hell yeah. <laughs> like That's not misery. It can be overwhelming because that's always going to look impossible. But that's where, for me, that's the hope that I want to try to invite us into and say, yeah, whether it's Alan Watts or my Buddhist friend, it doesn't have to be in vulnerabilism. It might be this awareness that I am not determined just by getting something tomorrow. I determine what tomorrow might be. And the way I tell this to my students is always trying to like invert the logic of admissions uh, staff, right? All colleges are about real world experience. And for me, it's always, but what experiences do you want to seek and foster that will better invite you to make a world look differently as real? And this is where death matters, man. The fact that we're going to die means my living toward that eschatological hope, this existential awareness of my vulnerability, humility that cultivates hospitality and gratitude, that orientation, that faithfulness is not something about me and my life. That's why future generations compel me, right? That's why even if the world goes to hell 500 years from now, I'm still guilty. Did I live today such that maybe 500 years doesn't come like that? And so when we become, when we get in solidarity through time with others, across species in our ecosystems, right? When we link up with those who have been historically othered, when we recognize that privilege doesn't mean to walk around feeling guilty, but it means to walk around trying to figure out how do I not have to use the microphone, but maybe hand it to someone else. That awareness, I think, is full of desire. So I'm all in on desire. I just want to make sure that our desires are virtuously existentially oriented, right? Yeah, no, that's awesome. I love it. And I think, I don't know, I agree. I, uh, even if I couldn't have put it uh, in such philosophical terms, um, I have often argued that eschatology, I think within like a theological realm is probably one of the most important <laughs> types yeah. like theological conversations to have. Because if your eschatology sucks, then like everything else screwed. will probably suck too yeah which is <laughs> what well, heidegger says this right i mean he's got this cool line where we, we tend to think our present occurs out of our past right because our past mm -hmm. kind of propels us forward heidegger says wrong our present occurs out of our future hmm. because it's only in light of what we envision as possible that we live today <laughs> right mm -hmm. and so you're right eschatology too often is just a story about heaven rather than a narrative about what hopes are worthy of our lived praxis. And we tend to think, unfortunately, about salvation, our soteriology. We think about this in terms of being able to get to heaven, which is escapist, rather than realizing maybe salvation is recognizing that cat would starve otherwise, <laughs> right? Like soteriology is about living such that life is something I cultivate.
that I'm walking around saying you good, right? And so that for me also then hits upon an area theologically that we rarely talk about, I think, well, and I'm a Pentecostal, so we talk really badly about this, um, which is the prophetic, right? What does it mean to talk about prophecy? Well, unfortunately, in my traditions, it too often looks like somebody claiming to know when Jesus is coming back in 1988 or, uh, you know, doing a rain dance and COVID disappearing from the face of the earth and and God waking you up with a vision and telling you that, you know, Trump's going to be elected or whatever. Like prophecy is not about foreseeing the future, or at least not only about foreseeing the future. There's that register, of course, is, is available um, in Hebraic and Christian traditions, but it's not just about seeing the future, because that makes the future the existential achievement that now I am greater than others and can sell a bunch of books by telling you about the thing I got that you don't have yet. But what if the prophetic looks more like Martin King when he says, I have a dream? <laughs> right. And he has to have it as dream because he's living in the segregated South talking about a future that is impossible from where he stands. Right. What if the prophetic starts looking like Wendy Farley discussing what it means for LGBTQ to be invited back into community within the church? <laughs> That's impossible given where we find ourselves. And yet this invitation is, she says, part of what it is to inherit the Christian invitation in the first place, right? So I think climate change, social justice, these are all issues that the prophetic is actually a really good register to think about them. But that requires we rethink soteriology and eschatology. And I'm suggesting as a philosopher, not a theologian, the existentialists, actually help us do that work. And if you don't give a rat's ass about any of that theology or the fancy philosophy stuff, it helps us realize that, huh, th there are always more trout to catch. And when I don't catch any trout and have a crappy day and my waders rip and my toes have gone numb and my rod breaks, whatever it is, right? Man, I got to go fishing. So finding a way not to be just rose-colored about everything, but finding a way to realize, again, like Nick Riggle says, man, this beauty, <laughs> it's here. And there's something about that beauty that we miss if we are always only angry about injustice. Now, I'm all in for being angry at the crap we see in the world. But if we're only angry about it, then we will live into a future that is an angry future rather than saying, nah, the point's to be joyful. So while I am angry about this injustice, how can I live joyfully in a world that then like Gandhi walking in the face of the guns and Martin Luther King walking up to the dogs and the fire hoses, like what does it look like to stand where you're standing enacts a logic that is disruptive of the power structure that you face. That is the thing I think that existential philosophy might help us do, right? And, I, and for me, I go mountain biking uh, and trout fishing a lot because those are activities that radically disrupt 
the normalcy of the existential logic by which capitalism functions and by which my life works and by which I pay bills. And man, when you're on a mountaintop, the other day I rode uh, seven miles straight climb, seven miles climb right out of the truck, <laughs> got to the top. I mean, gassed, man. And I was there with a friend of mine and we're sitting at the top and, you know, eating a protein bar, trying to <laughs> get our energy back. And then you fist bump and drop in on this downhill, famous downhill here in Pisgah National Forest. And it, it's it's amazing. It's not that the downhill made the climb worth it, though it does. <laughs> That's the existential logic and the existential logic. It's that I got to spend my finitude for a few hours that day on a mountainside, even gassed and exhausted and my calves and quads burning with a friend doing something that we will not be able to do in all likelihood 20 years from now. We did 45 well that day. But then the point is, if I only do that, well, I'm now forgetting all the people who can't spend 45 or 36 or 29 that way. So it's got to be something, again, that is it's both and in this way, right? But we've got to also be okay with taking a day to go fishing so that we can remember why it's important to make sure that everybody gets fishing rods, which is the justice issue. Yeah. No, nah, dude, I, yeah, I like it. And I think maybe perhaps that's why I'm drawn to uh, a more existential thought and philosophy because <laughs> yeah, it fits yeah. so nicely with these, these other things. Cause I, I don't know. I just, I want to comment on this and then I, I want to ask you about a story um that I've heard you tell. And I also uh, read it um, in a chapter in your upcoming book um, that I just think is super powerful. And at least it, uh, I don't know, it messed me up in a positive way uh, at beer camp. And so I thought yeah. maybe it'd be a fun thing to, to talk about, yeah. but yeah. Um, just with kind of like stringing together all of, all of the places you've just went with like eschatology and soteriology and um, the, the, the prophetic I think all of that is like is dead on. I think all of like we so have this tendency to separate and silo um whether it's like different disciplines or different like yeah. theological categories or ideas which then fails to recognize how all of them are actually deeply interrelated and interconnected. And so I think when we have a strong eschatology which is probably one of the things that keeps me hanging around this Jesus yeah. person <laughs> is this image of the kingdom of God and yeah. a strong eschatological hope where, uh, you know, every tear is wiped away and there is no right. more injustice and the mm. line in the lamb do lay down like, fuck. Yeah. Like that is yeah. high five. Well done. <laughs> and then that, then yeah. though can that eschatological future hope can then inform my current situation in such a way that i recognize that in order to get to that impossible future as as you've been calling it um like from a soteriological perspective my salvation and whatever that means yeah. is then inherently wrapped up and tied up with your salvation yes and with my neighbor's yes. salvation and with the cat that comes on your yep. front porch that you give the tuna fish to yeah. but you can't get there if you don't have that eschatological hope and, and future vision and then the prophetic yep. i think are people who have that eschatological vision that can walk out into an unjust world 
and speak truth to the powers and say yeah. like, dude, that's not cool. And here's what's better. And then live into that. And I, so yes, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I'm, I don't know. Amen. That's fist bump. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, bump. man. Boom. And, and, and there's no. That'll preach. They say that in Pentecostal that, that'll circles, preach. right? That... <laughs> Dude, I wrote an essay a few years ago. <laughs> uh, I had a student ask me how she, she was becoming a, a minister is what she wanted to, to be. And she says, it took me philosophy, religion. She's like, Hey, I love Kierkegaard, but is there any way for Kierkegaard to like, you know, preach? I mean, how, how can I give sermons on this? And I was so perplexed by this question that I wrote an essay uh, called um, Can Kierkegaard Preach? And I the whole thing was using these Pentecostal terms of phrase and neologisms. So it was, you know, preach it, Kierkegaard, right, was one, and that'll preach. <clears throat> and so I do this the whole way through, trying to say, what does it look like to read Kierkegaard such that we are saying that'll preach and preach it, Kierkegaard, and amen? Unfortunately, uh <laughs> I, I got invited to write this essay, and so I had this one that I was working on. I was like, hey, what about this? And the people said, yeah, sounds fantastic. Um, but uh, it was a Ukrainian journal, which was super flattering. And now, in retrospect, given their you know heroism in the face of, of true trauma, I'm, I'm honored to have had anything published in Ukrainian. But uh, they translated it to Ukrainian and published it, right? It didn't even occur to me in my own egocentrism. Um, and logocentrism that these phrases might not translate. And so a friend of mine is Ukrainian, and I reached out to her and it was after it got published, I was like, hey, can you like read me a couple of these sentences? What does this say? Like if you're translating it back to English. And so can Kierkegaard preach, where preach had that you know tonality in it, right? Became can Kierkegaard be a pastor? <laughs> I was like, oh man. <laughs> So I'm sure, uh, with apologies to any Ukrainian who read that essay and thought, what a dry, horrible essay, I apologize. Because yes, that'll preach is an important phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's always, oh man, I don't know, the the limits of language um, are always so funny. Actually, I'll tell this story really quickly because it's a complete rabbit trail, uh, but ADHD yeah. brain. But you're talking with like language. Um, I have a buddy um named Luke uh who mm -hmm. is a I don't know if you would use the word missionary um mm -hmm. but like basically a missionary uh him and his wife um live in Thailand um nice and they do work specifically with uh teenagers caught up in sex trafficking wow um and they also work with uh, mothers who have been like kicked out of their home or that kind of mm -hmm. stuff so that's the kind of work that they do. But when they first got there uh, and they were still learning uh, the language, um, basically a lady asked my buddy Luke, uh, like, what, you know, what do you really like about Thailand? And what mm -hmm. he tried to say was that uh, the people of Thailand are very hospitable. Mm -hmm. um, but he the inflection uh, in his voice was incorrect. And what he Oops. ended up saying was. Uh, the people in Thailand are really good at sex. <laughs> and oh, then when man. she, yeah. And so like taking into consideration the kind of work that like everything that about he does. It, yeah. He was the worst so, possible. so, 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 oh, so embarrassed. My gosh. And luckily oh, this God. lady was gracious and, and realized <laughs> very quickly. That's not what he was trying to say. That's not what you um, mean. 
Yeah, and he has uh, never made that mistake again. Uh, so I, I once learned. had a <laughs> I had a Chinese student once, uh, amazing guy, brilliant. Uh, came up to me, I don't know, three or four classes into the semester, and he said, "Doctor Simmons, you are a very bad teacher." And you know, I wasn't offended. I was just like, "Wow, that's bold." <laughs> Right. And I was like, Hey, you know, why don't we come to my office, man? Let's talk about this. You know, is there anything I can do to be better or whatever? And so we got together. What turns out what he thought he was saying is that I was bad at being like these teachers he was used to having who were like, you know, power magisters of the you know space and instead was inviting him to think with me. And on. A, so he, he meant it as this compliment. But yeah, it came out as like this critique you couldn't possibly imagine a student having the guts to tell you, right? So <laughs> he immediately like became one of my favorite students ever. It's like, yeah, that guy told me I suck at this. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then to think here, right, watch this. I'll tie ADHD brains can then, right, tie things back. And I'm going right. to tie this to the Bible. Ready? And then for some reason, we think that we can have a full total understanding of exactly what the biblical authors meant yep. after it's been translated through multiple languages. Yeah. It's nuts. Absolutely and nuts. We have it. It, it, it. And this is where, and we talked about phenomenology, we talked about existentialism, the other yeah. like uh, third rail uh, of, of this weird philosophical tripod upon which I rest uh, is hermeneutics. And, you know, that's simply the idea that interpretation is always a task right? It's always something that is ongoing. And if we think about aging and death as a hermeneutic task, then it's, well, what does it mean? I mean we talk about the phrase over the hill, right? Which is something I reflect on in the book. What does it mean to be over the hill? Well, what hill are we trying to climb? <laughs> right? I watched a movie today, uh, The Mountain Between Us with Kate Winslet and, you know, about these people who get you know, airplane crash and have to make their way out of the mountains and survive and all this. And you're like, look, being over the hills, the goal, <laughs> why do we think of it as this bad thing? Right. And it's all anchored in this hermeneutic phrase that is assuming the top of the mountain is the goal. Well, talk to any mountain biker. The top of the mountain is only the goal as the starting point. <laughs> right. Now you talk to a hiker the top of the mountains of the goal, because that's usually the end of the hike where you get the view or the waterfall or whatever. So it depends what we're doing and what liturgical enactment we are currently uh, you know, engaged in that are we trying to get over the hill to the top of the hill back down the hill? What if it's getting dark and we're at the top of the hill looking at that beautiful view? Well, did you bring a flashlight? If not, you might want to get over the hill real quick and <laughs> get back to the car. So thinking about age, as an invitation for, hey, what will this mean to you, right? What will 45 mean to me? This is a question that I didn't get to ask really until I was 45. And I think by reflecting hermeneutically on what 45 means, maybe 46 will be something that I reflect a little bit more effectively in relation to, right? And there's that faithfulness again, trying to do it better always rather than just accomplish it. So let's talk about that story that uh, messed you yeah. up in the right way. Yeah. So I think, so what's cool about it is like, I'm a relatively young person. I am 28 mm -hmm. years old. I'll be 29 this year. Um, actually, I was, yeah, I was messing with my wife because she's like a few months older than me. She's, I uh, was born uh -oh. in May and I'm September. And so okay. she's going to be 29 before me. And um, 
Yeah, so I was I was giving her grief uh, last night, and she did not appreciate that. <laughs> but what I think um, is interesting about this kind of conversation is, at least experientially, um, I don't sit around with people my age and talk about aging and death. Because right. most of the time when you're 28 years old, you feel invincible or like you don't think about that kind of stuff. And I'll um, tell you, at 45 the vast majority of the conversations I have with people I go mountain bike with who are also in their forties, we are talking about some dimension of it. Hmm. Right now it shows up different, different cases, right? Half the time it's talking about our parents who are trying to navigate and, you know, are we moving into the home? Are we going to help them move? Are we trying to take care of their retirement, et cetera. Other times it's, you know, talking about medical things like, ah, oh, you get that prostate exam. It's like right. thinking through, like being aware of stuff that you just aren't at 28. And so I do think that there is a, you know, Derrida says at one point, philosophers are those people who are constantly interested in what counts as philosophy. Um, I might say that middle-aged people are those people who are really, really obsessed with how to think well about middle age. Um, and when you're young, like you're not thinking about middle age, you're thinking about like, you know, hey, what's this weekend got or or what's what's that next move or that next hustle, which is appropriate. So it's important to realize that aging is also a matter of learning to read the same book differently <laughs> over and over again. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And um, it's I don't know. So it's it's just interesting to me then that like. Um, this kind of thing piques my interest for whatever reason. Um, and so at, at beer camp, um, you told a story that really stuck with me and you kind of ended it with, you know, um, like the, the personal rephrasing of the, like, uh, what are you going to do with your finitude kind of thing? Or, or, or maybe you even asked like, like what is worthy of my finitude? Yeah. And that like, just from a personal perspective, um, so I used to be a pastor and I like stopped mm-hmm. doing that. Right. And I be eventually right. became a brewer. I was a bartender for a while first, blah, blah, blah. General manager became a brewer and I absolutely love making beer. Um, mm-hmm. like way a lot. It's a lot of fun. I genuinely awesome. enjoy beer. Um, mm-hmm. so that's like a cool thing, right? Um, it's like, it's a hobby that now makes me money, et cetera, et cetera. But at, at camp, when you said like, is like what's worthy of giving your finitude for to yeah like something in me was like well not this and by that i mean like what i'm currently doing and not that like i think beer matters like it's a cool thing there's a lot of awesome stuff about it but like that question really messed with me um yeah yeah and as you know led me to a conversation we had prior to starting recording this conversation Mm -hmm. um wink wink Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) You told this all that to say you told a story and you wrote it also in the the chapter that you sent me on aging yeah. and death about yeah. a former professor of yours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you share that story if you wouldn't mind? Yeah. So I had a uh, professor when I was at Florida State, and this is the very end of the new book uh, called Camping with Kierkegaard. Hopefully we'll uh, be under contract somewhere soon and I can <laughs> start actually pitching. I've been, I've been talking about it for a year as I wrote it, um, and now it's done and I'm just hoping it's published. But uh, this is the very end of the book. I, I decided to end the book by telling this story. 
Um, and so in brief, I had this professor named David Kangas, who was the first professor to ever teach me um, Kierkegaard with any depth. I had had one other class, an English class, that we had read a little bit of Kierkegaard, but it was when I met David uh, in a class at Florida State University in grad school that I really got introduced to Kierkegaard as a conversation partner, somebody I would walk with for the rest of my life. And David was the kind of professor who, um, kind of like my my Chinese student uh, said about me, where David always invited us to think with, and and there were these few days that were just absolutely mind blowing, where we got to watch him think in front of, right? Which I love both of those facets, right? It's the person who thinks with you all the time, and sometimes they almost like, in a weird way, forget you're there because they are thinking. That's uh, what Emerson calls, you know, humanity thinking. And you get to see this. And I would see it every once in a while with David. And it was powerful because here is a guy who um, never saw philosophy as just a professional discourse. It was that. And he was very good at it and was on the translation team working on Kierkegaard's journals and wrote two amazing books. Um, but philosophy was, we might say, the name for thinking that living was not only worth our time, but worth our thinking, right? It, it mattered that we live well, so we should get really darn good at thinking about living well, right? And <laughs> David was young. Uh, at the time I had him, uh, he would have been probably in his mid-30s. Uh, I was in my uh, early 20s, and so you're about a decade older than me. Um, at the time, of course, you know, he was a middle-aged dude, right? And I was 23 or whatever and young, and he was some old guy, even though he wasn't old. But he, but he was young, much younger then than I am now. <laughs> and David, you know, moved around, ended up getting a job different places and stuff, and we stayed in touch. Uh, and then I got this um, email from him, which was... Um, disruptive in bad ways, but ultimately, I think, in the very best ways possible. Um, he sent this email. It actually came to me via a mutual friend of ours who they had worked together at Florida State, taught a class together. I facilitated, the guy's name was Martin Kavka, um, facilitated them writing an essay together on Kierkegaard and Levinas that appeared in one of my books. And one of my great achievements was getting them to think in print together, which I love. Um, and so David had written Martin and said, hey, please send this to our friends. And so Martin sends me this uh, email from David. And it basically said, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. But he said, um, so I've got stage four cancer. Um, and he said, it's by definition incurable. Um, the question is a matter of prolonging time. Right. And then he, you know, waxes philosophical. Of course, how much time is anybody's guess? And, you know, we do the best we can. But then what really stuck with me was um, almost like Socrates, if you've read the Phaedo, where Socrates, you know, is getting ready to drink the hemlock. And he basically like looks around and takes care of those around him <laughs> rather than worrying about his own situation. David did the same. And he said, when I was told that I was dying, 
Um, and ultimately he was given, you know, a year ish was kind of what they, they told him. And he was at the time in his early fifties, uh, avid hiker, avid outdoorsman, uh, major backpacker did amazing, amazing stuff, um, out West in the mountains. And he says, you know, I've still got time to hike. Uh, I can return to teaching. I'll be able to be with family. And he says, and this will be wonderful. He never says anything about how awful, how horrible, how miserable. Uh, it, it, ultimately, he, you know, there is no statement where effing Camus, Sisyphus is ruined. This is a waste of time. None of that. What he does is says, as I sat there with the physician trying to tell me about <laughs> my prospects, I couldn't help but try to explain to the physician when did he ever think he would cure me of the human condition? <laughs> right? Like, I, I mean, I can't imagine the fortitude and, and wherewithal in that moment to say, so doc, did, did you think the goal was to prevent me from dying? Th then you're, you might as well make me non-human, right? And he says, I never thought the human condition was a disease or a condition from which we should seek a cure. And because I thought this, he said, I am able now to let, as he puts it, I will let the technicians do with me what they will, right? Yeah, give me the chemo, give me the stuff. Like, okay, mechanics, see what you can do with this machine. But don't you ever think that the goal is for me to become machine. And so he ends this email with words that have haunted me since the first day I read them. I don't even know how many essays now that I have included this phrase. He ends his email by saying, in the end, there is the unmanageable, but we would be trivial beings without it. So onward with my day. And then he ends with an exclamation point. And for me, I'm just like, oh, oh man, that's so effing baller. <laughs> like, like, oh, how, how do you that day? You've got stage four cancer, about a year to live. How, he's got two kids, an amazing wife who's a scholar herself. Like, I mean, amazing, amazing family. So much to live for. He had another book that was forthcoming that he probably wouldn't even get to see. And it turns out it was published posthumously. How how do you reach out to your relational community and say, in the end is the unmanageable, but we would be trivial without it? And that's that Todd May point. That's the screw invulnerabilism, right? Screw nihilism. Screw the logic of success that says you only matter if you're somehow healthy, wealthy, and wise and got a big old fat paycheck. Notice the ableist thinking that runs in that nihilist view, right? The unmanageable defines us because there is no direction that is not risky. So onward with my day. In the midst of it not being okay, there is no not okay that you could think of much worse than the not okay he got that day, right? And yet he basically responds to all the rest of us by saying, you good. <laughs> exclamation point. He ended up passing away. Um, we communicated a, a couple times. Um, if I remember right, I think there was an email or two that maybe have passed after that. But but it was that first, that first statement. Onward with my day. So I end the book with this. 
a chapter called The Other Side of the Mountain, which is all about what does it mean to be over the hill? What does it mean to age? What does it mean to lose, to experience loss, to experience grief, to face death? And my argument is David Kangas, like so many others, known and unknown, celebrated and absolutely forgotten. So many have modeled what it looks like to live well in light of the fact that we do not live forever. So when people want to think about death, for me, some days I don't have it. I'll be honest with you. Like some days like, nope, too quick. I can't do it today. It's heavy today. I can't. Other days I'm able to, with David, say onward with my day. And then in hope, eschatological hope, put that exclamation point right behind it. Some days onward with my day, question mark? You've got to be effing kidding me. <laughs> but the fact that he he put that exclamation point there continues to encourage me, to speak to me, to invite me. And so I've decided to, with the permission and blessing of his, his wife, use his story uh, to tell others. So ultimately, it wasn't the Kierkegaard he taught me, though that was influential. It wasn't the pedagogy that he modeled, which certainly has shaped my own. It was the fact that he faced death by living. And he did it with freaking swagger. And so I'm sure there are days where that swagger was gone and only his wife got to see those days. And I think that's also beautiful. That their intimacy means that there was a side to him that we didn't get to see. And I think that's also amazing. But what we did get to see, oh, hell yeah, right? I mean, that that's the fist bump before you drop in on that mountain trail, <clears throat> knowing that you may not make it to the bottom. But yeah, <laughs> Let, let's pedal hard until we do, right? And I'm, I'm, I love it. I'm in. Yeah. No, I dig it, man. That's, it's a great story. Um, and I thought it'd be nice to to kind of wrap up with um because it too like i don't know it stood out to me and it's it's kept me uh thinking but also um i don't know has given me a framework to just i don't know keep asking the question is this worthy of my finitude is it worthy um yeah and then like go do those things that i find that are, <laughs> that are. well and i, I should say just, just as an encouragement to you and yeah. to everyone else um the biggest critique I have gotten to, from people who have read drafts of this book is this is all fine and good, but you're a tenured full professor able to make enough money that you're able to go mountain biking two days a week, right? Like, And I get that critique. Um, but what I think is so important is to recognize that when we say what is worthy of my finitude, there's not one answer. The, the book is not telling you what's worthy of your finitude. It's trying to just get you to say, hey, ask that question for you, where you are. Let hermeneutics be a task for you today. And so for some, beer brewing, absolutely, they will say, yes, that's worthy of my finitude because this is where I find what excellence looks like. This is where I'm able to live habitually in a praxis that matters to me. This is where I'm able to care for my family. This is a art that I find to stimulate everything that is beautiful. Like for others doing the exact same activity, they may say, you know, it's okay, 
but nah, this isn't where I want to find myself forever, right? And the point is not to then enter judgment about the better and worse answer. I mean, there are some bad ones, right? Sex trafficking, yeah, no, that's just evil. That's not, no. Uh, heroin addiction, no, no. So being able to realize there are some that are just off the table, right? Being the asshole corporate banker who doesn't care about anyone other than himself, not okay, not worthy of finitude. So, but being a banker, Man, I'm glad there are virtuous ones who are opening up all kinds of opportunities for people to be able to navigate the world in which we find ourselves that is defined by a lending model that we might otherwise wish were different, right? So there is no single answer to what is worthy. What there is, is an awareness of vulnerability and finitude that cultivate and should cultivate humility, hospitality, and gratitude. And that's true for us all. And if we can get that and then say, all right, so how can I now make the minutes that I spend minutes that I feel good about having spent? Then okay. And we've got to be careful not to judge each other that they didn't answer it the way I would have answered it. Say again, some things off the table. Taking advantage of people because they're poor. No, you're just an ass. You don't get that's evil. But everybody doesn't have to be involved in the kind of amazing work that your friend Luke is. I wish more people were, but I'll be honest, like I'm not good at that kind of work. And so I recognize that it would be something I'm not only not good at, but I would probably be bad at. And so finding ways to support Luke or others like him doing work because they find that to be where they get that exclamation point. Awesome. But I'm also recognizing that, look, I teach amazing students and invite them to live lives that are significant in ways that they may want to articulate. And it looks different. So part of humility is realizing that you don't have to find some sort of mystical answer that comes down from above, <laughs> right? It's okay to do the best we can with what we got where we are. And it's also okay to have desires for that eschatological vision that maybe in little brief moments becomes an actual historical praxis. And I think that any of us who think that's going to be something that we live in all the time uh, is like the professor who forgets that there's grading to do at the end of the semester until they get the email from the dean saying, yo, <laughs> like we, all the students can't graduate now. Because you didn't do your job. So no matter how awesome it is to give those lectures from on high, man, like you got to get the grading done. There's always the grading. There's always the dirty jobs. There's always that side to things. And so if we remember that, man, don't, don't feel bad that you aren't doing what you think's worthy. Recognize that just means then, hey, let's keep moving. Tomorrow also is a possible, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it just like, Part of how, uh, like what I've been trying to do, because like I said, I really act genuinely love um, brewing and beer and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But just like trying to do kind of like you were talking about earlier, like, oh, how do I be the best version of 45 or whatever? It's like, how mm -hmm. can I do the best version of Josh in this current situation that I can yep. do? And um, things like uh, Brother Lawrence and the you know practice of the presence uh, kind of thing. Um, mm. 
Yeah, or just like use these, you know, small little menial tasks and just do them well and with love um, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And so that's that's yeah. kind of like the the motivator for me uh, currently. Um, and then just like the community of people that comes together around the brewery that I work at is amazing. I absolutely love yeah. the the community of people there. Um, and that's been deeply meaningful. And then to be able to like be hanging out with them and then, you know, people are, everyone's drinking this beer that like we made. That's like awesome. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. so cool. So, and it's also, okay. That. I mean, you, you can be fully invested in, like, I would say faithfulness is being fully invested in, Hey, you're brewing beer. So brew it. Well, <laughs> make the best beer you can be fully invested in that community. And then if there's an opportunity that you think, you know what, I'm going to go elsewhere, being okay with the fact that making that move is not somehow being faithless to that community, right? But saying, no, this is what we want for each other. We we are excited about each other finding their own ways forward. This is why Nietzsche is right when he says we all go our own ways to greatness. And Kierkegaard is right under the pseudonym of Johannes de Silencio when he says that the knight of faith must walk the path alone. But the cool thing is they are both wrong about social life, right? What's worthy of my finitude? Only you get to answer that. But guess what? <laughs> no matter what you decide, you will have a chorus, a cloud of witnesses, man, all saying you good, <laughs> all right? And asking you, are you, you good? And in asking, they are asserting the period and maybe the exclamation point. So it's cool that we love excellence where we are. It's even cooler that we are okay with people moving on to other excellences and without feeling intimidated or that, oh, they've thought that this is not worth their time and I must, nah, being humble also means it's okay when somebody else chooses differently. And that's, you know, ultimately, man, wouldn't that be cool if we had a world defined by a celebration of diversity rather than one that was only ever understood as competitive? So yeah, man, I I'm, I'm with you. You good, bro. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> stoked about whatever comes, man. Sweet. Well, Aaron, this was, uh, so much fun. Um, yeah. I always appreciate Thank you so much our, for having me. yeah, conversations and we'll at most absolutely have to have you back once, uh, camping with Kierkegaard is closer to, uh, being printed. Um, I hope cause so. there's, I mean, there's just so much good there and I, I don't know, you're fun to hang out with too. So just from a selfish <laughs> well, I, perspective, you know, you're welcome anytime to come hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate the invitation. And for anybody who, uh, would like to, you know, hang out with me more often, please check out my YouTube channel. It's simply called philosophy for where we find ourselves. And it's, um, little five minute philosophical daily life sort of inspirational reflections. Um, I, I try to do one a week. I've been pretty lax the last few months, just, uh, being back full time, you know, in teaching and coming out of COVID and all that. But one of my uh, new year's habits is trying to be more committed to making sure that I've got a video up every week. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm trying to turn those videos into a new book. Um, just called, uh, <laughs> yeah, called, uh, uh, unless a piano falls on our heads. Nice. Is what I'm hoping to turn it into. So uh, yeah, so check it out. Philosophy where we find ourselves. Connect with me on Facebook or um, you know that the the Musk company that shall not be named. Whatever I can do, <laughs> reach out. Uh, and and I'd love to to meet all of you in the audience and hopefully uh, share a fruity beer 
or a dry cider, which is my preference at a uh, beer camp in the future. <laughs> there we go. All right. I'll be sure to put uh, all those things in the, the show notes for listeners, Aaron, uh, for ease of access. Um, yeah. And listeners, as always, thanks so much for hanging out today and uh, go in peace, guys. 